So I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians 1 4. <clears throat> it says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in everything in him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short or literally come come behind in in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word wait, eagerly waiting there's one word and, and most uh pretty much every lexicon Greek dictionary says that a, a better and commentary say that a, a more accurate translation of that is expecting fully or expecting constantly the um, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm or establish or make strong. I'm just throwing in some other translations here because I think sometimes words words can be important for obviously for conveying what Paul's trying to say here. Who will establish you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. So, we, we spend some time, you know, I, I know I talked about grace last week and the, and the reality that grace must reign. And um, we're going to, and he, and he starts, in, in verse 3 he says, Grace and peace to you. And, and I was trying to decide whether or not to talk about peace I talked about it a year ago in our uh, Colossians class when we got to Paul's greeting, his introduction where he says grace and peace. Um, I, I mentioned, I think I spent an entire um, Sunday just talking about peace, and I don't know that I feel it, it on me to do that right now. Maybe I'll just mention a couple things about peace. I really kind of want to get into this eagerly expecting or expecting fully or expecting constantly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is really what I want to focus in on today. Um, so, just to say, I guess for, for people that are maybe haven't heard me talk about this before, peace is not, uh, it's not understood as an emotion. And it's not really, that's not what it is. Although I know that there is a, there's a natural emotion that we call peace that, that usually has to do with a, like a sensation either that we're having or maybe the absence of problems or uh, usually it's it's an, it's more than it's more or less just an emotion. When the Bible talks about peace, it is not talking about it, it, it's talking about a spiritual reality, specifically the absence of enemies, the absence of hostility, the absence of enmity going on inside of the believer the the outward pictures of peace in the old covenant had to do with uh that when peace was established in the land of israel all of the enemies of god were killed were removed peace peace was never established by making a treaty with the enemies of the lord peace was established by removing the enemies of the lord cutting off the enemies of the lord so it's the same thing it's the same thing in us. Now we are the land that God is filling with His kingdom. We're the land that God is being glorified in or desires to be glorified in. And He wants us to experience the fullness of uh, grace and peace. But, but 
grace is, you could say, grace is the working of His power in the soul, Christ being made unto you all things. And peace is the, I guess you could say in a sense, peace is something that God makes with the, with the soul through the cross, through the work of Christ. But then He desires to cause the soul to experience, uh, to walk in the reality of peace by by removing the enemies from the land. Your soul, by nature, is, as Paul says, or Jesus, or, or any, of the, any of the writers of the New Testament, your soul is a hostile territory. Your soul is, is not a neutral... Your, the picture of your soul in the Old Covenant, the thing into which God moves in with His seed to establish His kingdom and... And to bring his reign, the picture of that is the land, the, the specific land of Canaan, in which there are seven heathen nations who have filled that land with idolatry and uncircumcised flesh and all kinds of abominations that he describes at length in Deuteronomy before he brings them in. Things that have never entered into the mind of God, uh, as he says in Deuteronomy a number of times, that, that that's what's filling up the land. God's seed goes into that land to establish peace in that land, but the peace is with God and with Israel, but the way that peace is established, the way that peace is made real is by the eliminating, the total eliminating of, of the enemy. So, a land is given to the seed, but the but the land that is given to the seed is full of flesh, it's full of enmity, it's full of contrariness. And peace was only really experienced in Solomon's reign after David had cut off all the flesh, after David had removed every uncircumcised Philistine and, and, and Canaanite and Amalekite from the land. Then, in the reign of Solomon, they experienced peace. But, the, but there was, this is so important because, first of all, to realize that your heart is not in when you are first born again you are not you, you might have flickers and tastes of peace from God because he has given you that seed and in the measure that you're experiencing that seed in that measure you can experience peace but but there's another sense in which you're not going to experience very much peace as long as the land is not subdued to its king as long as and, and, and any attempt to make a treaty in your heart, to make a covenant, to, to intermarry, that's why there's so many commandments about as soon as you go into the land, make sure that you do not make any, you know, smash this and destroy that and cast that out and kill everything that breathes here and there. Do not make treaties, do not make covenants, do not intermarry, do not, there's no peace for the wicked, there's no peace for the flesh. The way that the soul experiences peace is by the elimination of, of, the, of the contrary seed. And, and that's what the cross does. The cross spreads through the soul. As Christ is revealed in the soul, the truth of His life, the truth, truth of His death, the reality of His judgment, the judgment of the cross spreads through the land like the sword of David. And it brings death. It brings, um, it brings peace, peace through death. And anyone that would say, peace, peace, when there's no peace... See, that's what they were saying in Jeremiah. They were saying there was peace in the land without judgment. They were saying that there was... God had promised the sword. And the sword, in that 
case was Nebuchadnezzar's sword bringing judgment on flesh. And, and the false prophets of Israel were saying peace, peace when there was no peace. And the only peace that was going to come was going to come through this judgment. And those who were for the sword were for the sword. And those to the famine to the famine. And, 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 and the false prophets were characterized in, in, in the writings of the prophets. They were the ones who were declaring a peace with God where there was flesh. They, that's what they were saying. And Jeremiah would stand up and say, no, actually that's not true. And then he gets slapped in the face and thrown into a pit. And... And it's that way too. That It's always been that way. God does not make treaties. There's no mixture of the two seeds. He doesn't sow them both in the same land. He doesn't even let you wear a garment that has both of them mixed together. The two seeds don't mix. And the only time that the soul can grow in peace and can grow in grace. That's why Paul starts all of his letters talking about grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he desired all of them to grow in. But the peace that we grow in is by the working of the cross in us, cutting out, removing from us everything that every measure of uncircumcised flesh that is still working in our hearts by the unrenewed, unrenewed mind. So there's, and again, it's hard to exactly describe because there is, there's a finished, there's a, there's a reality for Israel where God just simply said, the whole land belongs to you. It's yours. And they could have said, wow, it's, it's finished. It's great. Let's just go on in and intermingle with the things that are always, uh, uh, that are already there. And God said, no, 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 no. It's all yours. And yet there is a taking of the land. There is an increase that casts out. What is already there. It's not in a good condition for you. You can't just enjoy it without your increase, the increase of the seed being the decrease of what's already there. And then peace is a reality. So Solomon is the king of peace. Why? That's what his name means. What, what, why was he the king of peace? Because David, the, the, the picture of Christ's work, David is, is like Christ's work on the cross, removing the work of the cross, removing flesh. And Solomon is like Christ reigning, having put away his enemies and, and establishing his house. They're both Christ, but one's Christ on one side of the cross and one's Christ on the other side of the cross. And, and Solomon is, can only be the king of peace because David, who he established the ability for peace to reign. He, he wasn't the one that built the house of peace. He was the one that put away everything. He, you see, that's why he couldn't build the house. He was the man of bloodshed. He was the one who killed the flesh. He was his role, his type and shadow, the picture that he played in Israel. He wasn't the one who reigned over a house without flesh. He was the one that was putting away the flesh. And his son, the one who came out the one who rose up in his place, he that was the one that reigned in peace. So anyway, I say all that just to say that, uh, really just to highlight the fact that when Paul's saying peace, he's not talking about um, peaceful feelings. Although, although, although true peace does give you a wonderful feeling and, and can give you an incredible, incredible feeling of peace with God through through Christ and peace with your brother in Christ by sharing one life and not having flesh in, intermixed in that relationship and all of that can 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 bleed out into the 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 emotions and 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 spread into people's outward experience and natural relationships and all of that and and yet it is defined by the spiritual reality it's defined by Christ reigning in an environment in which high places have been brought down, lofty thoughts have been cast down, 
enemies of the Lord have been cast out. Flesh has been cut off from the heart and Christ reigns in, in, in peace. His life, his nature is filling all and in all. So, okay, I just kind of want to touch on that. And I went longer than I thought, but um, this next part is interesting. He says, even as the testimony of Christ, let me, let me just, I don't, I don't mean to get too technical on like Greek definitions and words or things, but, but sometimes uh, I feel like, I feel like translations, um, you know, you know how it is. You can only translate into another language what you understand a person to be saying. That's just how it works. I mean, no matter what language, no matter how great the, the scholar is in Greek or Hebrew, or how great the person is, you know, fluent in another language, you can only put into another language what you're understanding a person to be saying. That's what you tra- that's what you translate. So if you're looking for an English word to convey something that was written in Greek, you're looking for the English word that conveys what you think the Greek means, period. So every translation brings in an element of human interpretation. It just does. There's no way to avoid it. It's that way. It's that way with the Bible. It's that way with uh, translating a book into another language, and, and it can be a real frustrating experience because sometimes language cannot, there's no perfect one-for-one ratio like code when it comes to, to translating languages. And I, and I say that because a lot of times translations fall short. I think this one falls short, especially in the King James, because in verse 7... The King James says, eagerly waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is really bad. I mean, that's, I mean, that's not, I don't mean it's a bad, it's a really bad translation of that word is what I mean. It's, it's simply the word, it's the Greek word apocalypsis and it's the, it's the word revelation or taking the cover off, revealing. That's the word there. Most modern translations actually have the word revelation now, but for for several centuries, um, the King James was kind of like the reigning translation, and and that's what it said: the coming of the Lord, eagerly waiting for the coming. And I just feel, and and, and also the word, the the translation of eagerly waiting isn't even that accurate too. It is really expecting fully or expecting constantly, and that's different because eagerly waiting for a coming is me. According to time, waiting for an event, but eagerly expecting or constantly expecting a revealing is my soul perpetually, continually engaged and locked into this thing, this experience that is happening, that is, that is continual and ongoing. And, and those two things are just really different. So, um, here's what I think, here's kind of what I think, well, let me read this part again. So that you come short, literally, you don't come behind in any, uh, or is it, in any gift, and I think he's referencing come behind, like you're not, you're not lacking gifts that other churches or other believers were um, lacking. Well, I actually skipped this part here. It says, you were enriched in everything or made rich in everything in him and all utterance and all knowledge. The word utterance there is actually the word uh, word in Spanish, word, 
I'm Spanish and Greek, sorry. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you do not come behind in any gift, eagerly expecting, expecting constantly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also establish, make strong, confirm you to the end. And that word end in Greek also, telos is, is the word, the goal, the full result, the point aimed at. Okay? So it's not like he'll, he'll confirm you to the end of your life. He's going to establish or make you strong, confirmed unto his goal, unto his point that he's aiming at, which I believe is the next phrase, that he makes you blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, usually, I don't usually pick apart translations as much as, as I do in this part, but uh, in these few verses, but I just feel like it's... Uh, it's relevant because I think what Paul is saying here is that you've he's talking to this group of believers who, as we all know, is is relatively though they have received everything, they've received Christ and all that is in Christ, and they're not they're not lacking in any particular gifts or knowledge of the gospel um, or all that is in Christ. They're not they're not behind other churches in the in the Christ that they've received, and yet as we go on to see in these next fifteen chapters. They're not, they're not experiencing or walking in. Uh, they've received all the gifts, and yet, as you can see, if you're looking at spiritual gifts, and later on in the in the book, Paul rebukes them for the way that they're using those gifts and how they're bringing chaos and, and confusion into their services with those gifts. And they've they've received the knowledge and the truth as it is in Christ, and yet they're still very confused about a whole lot of things. And so. Um, you know, they've received the truth, it's reached into their heart, was confirmed by the Spirit of God there within them, confirmed, the testimony was confirmed in them, and they've, re- they've received these gifts of grace. When I, because the word gifts here is really just, um, it's some people literally translate it like grace effects. It's the word grace with this little, you know, end on it that's like effects of grace or works of grace. That the Lord, he, the Lord gives those things for the building up of His body. They're not behind the other churches in what they've received, and yet there is supposed to be this expectation. It's it's kind of like He's saying everything of Christ has been given to you. You're not lacking anything you need, but it's all towards this one goal, and the one goal is this perpetual expectation for the unveiling of Jesus Christ so that they can be spotless or established or um, confirmed or blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to probably take more than a couple of weeks, even, especially since we got kind of a late start today. This is going to take a little time to um, talk about this. But here's what I'm trying to say. See, this is the purpose for which they had received Christ. To see Him and to be conformed to His image. In other words, salvation of the soul is not God's purpose. We are saved for a purpose. They had received Christ. They had received grace. They had received His Word and knowledge and grace and gifts of grace for a purpose. And that purpose is bound up in the second part of this clause, the second part of this thing that I just read to you, and that purpose is to know Him by revelation and be made blameless in His day. That's what I think Paul is saying here. I don't think, 
the purpose is this i don't think it's right to say the purpose is getting you out of egypt i think that god brings you out of egypt to bring you into a land and fill the land with the glory of god as the waters cover the sea in in new covenant language i don't think the purpose is to get you out of hell or even to get you out of adam i think the purpose is to get you i think the purpose of getting you out of hell and getting you out of adam is so that you would see and know Christ as the Father desires to reveal Him in you and be conformed to that image, become blameless in the day. And we'll talk about what that day is later, but to become, you see, it's about seeing Him and becoming blameless in His day. It's kind of like it reminds me of the story of the road to, the the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Uh, They had believed in Christ. They were disciples of Christ, right? They had received... Christ's word, Christ's testimony. They, and they were, you could say that they were very enriched in all words and truth concerning him in the scriptures because Jesus just gave them a very long, probably several hour long sermon on himself from the entire Old Testament. A really enriching experience, I am sure. Jesus Christ preaching himself from the word, from the words of the Psalms, he says, from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And, and, and their hearts burned within them. And yet, they had not seen him. Now, someone says, what do you mean? They were walking with him for like six hours. That's, that's true. But they still hadn't seen him. They hadn't seen him, and Jesus could have just kept going. He could have just passed them by with their hearts still burning, totally convinced that Christ, you know, was the one, that, that, that the Christ that died in Jerusalem was in fact the ones the prophets spoke about. And, and totally with their doubts removed and their questions answered and the scriptures opened and their hearts burning, Jesus was going to walk right on by. Remember that? And yet they implored him to come in to their dwelling. They, they implored him and he comes in and now they come to the purpose for their hearts burning and they come to the purpose for the testimony that Jesus has declared to them. The purpose for the scriptures, the purpose for everything that had just happened to them. There was a reason why their hearts were burning and the reason why Christ was testified in the scripture and a reason why Christ appeared to them on the road in a form that they didn't recognize. And here it was. They saw him in a different way. They saw, they, they, their eyes were opened and they saw him and just as soon as the true eye, the true eye of faith, the true eye, the, the, the true light shined in their hearts and they began to truly see and know him with the greater seeing, with the greater knowing, then just as soon as they had made that transition, Jesus says, okay, you no longer need those natural eyes, I'm out of here. Boom, he's gone. He disappears from the realm of sight when he is being beheld by faith. Faith being that inward sense of the heart, that light that works by the mind of Christ shining within you. That, that living view and a living light. Not a blind belief in the natural mind. Faith being that that awakening of the, of the, of the soul, that opening of the soul's eye. To see what the light of Christ shines there. And when that opened in them, then, well, that was the, that was the beginning of the true seeing. And that's what Jesus, that's why he kept popping in and popping out for 40 days. 
He was helping them make that transition. They had known him according to the flesh, and yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, you know Christ no more according to the flesh. They had clung to him in the flesh, and yet, as he says to Mary, cling to me no more according to the flesh. There's a new way to cling to me. You know, uh, Thomas says, excuse me, let me see your hands and your feet, and, and and he condescends. To show them, look, it is me. Look at my hands, my feet. Give me some fish. I'll eat it in front of you. I'm not a ghost. And yet, he says, blessed from now on are those who faith without seeing. And that word in Greek is faith. We translate it believe, but it's the same word, pistis. It's the word faith. And and that's what he does. And he, he gets taken up out of their sight. And over and over again, out of their sight, until one day he goes out of their sight and says, wait for me for 10 days, and then I'll come back in a greater way. And and he does. And all of it is seen, all of it has to do with this inward seeing and knowing and growing in this this constant expectation, this wait for me until you are clothed with power. Wait, don't do anything apart from this knowing of me by my spirit, this seeing of me by my spirit. And so, see, we're so far. Here's my here's the reason I, I get so passionate about about this is because we're so far in, in the church, generally speaking, we're so far from understanding this reality that we don't even translate the verse right. Do you know what I'm saying? We're so far from understanding how the great expectation of the Christian soul is the appearing of Christ, is the seeing and knowing of Christ by revelation. That is so far from our expectation that we don't even translate the word. What the clear, the the word here is, is the same, it's the title of the book of Revelation. It's not like the scholars didn't know that the word was revelation. It's not like it was a mysterious you know, enigmatic word that no one knows. It's the same word that that is the title of the book of Revelation. And yet they put coming. Why? Because it makes sense to our natural mind to wait in time for a natural, physical event. And now I'm not trying to kill anyone's eschatology either. Believe whatever you want about end times events. I'm not trying to hit that right now. I'm just talking about the expectation of the Christian soul to see and know and have Christ revealed within. That should be, that is the, that's the constant, that should be the constant expectation of every Christian. And we're so far from that. I don't think what Paul is talking about here in in 1 Corinthians 1 has anything to do with a future event or an outward experience. In fact, I think that to talk about this expectation that Paul is describing here as though it is a still 2,000 years later. Telling them, now think about this, guys, just think about this with me, okay? Does it make sense for Paul to tell people to have their primary constant expectation to be a future outward event that still, 50 generations later, hasn't happened? Is that what he would tell them is their real expectation? Now, I know, I know commentaries all say that. Look up one, you know, grab a commentary, pull it off the shelf, look at first, you know, Corinthians 1, whatever this is, five or six. And I know, I know they're going to say the blessed expectation of these Christians and all Christians in every age is the, the, uh, you know, obscure possibility that maybe you're going to be the one that sees him with your outward eyes in the outward sky. Is that, does that really make sense? Are they supposed to be 
fixing their expectation on an outward, natural-eyed seeing of Christ in the natural sky that didn't even happen in their lifetime. Or their kids' lifetime. Or their grandkids' lifetime. Or their great-grandkids' In fact, it still hasn't happened. Just, just think about that. Is that the, the expectation of the gospel? The great expectation that's on so many pages of the New Testament? Is it a future natural event? Or were they supposed to expect and turn and look and watch and experience on an ever-increasing ever daily reality the revealing of the Son of God in His temple where He appears in the eternal day light shining, the dawning of that day in the heart. Is that, what is our blessed hope? All over the New Testament, you'll read about our blessed hope, our great expectation. There is one expectation. We are born again into a living expectation. What is that expectation? Is it the watching and waiting for a future event? Or is it that the heart fixes its expectation on the seeing and knowing of the appearing of Christ in the soul. I don't think it makes sense that Paul would encourage believers age after age after age to focus their attention on something that might happen in their day, but probably wouldn't. I don't don't think that makes any sense. You know, is it possible that Paul had a, had a different understanding of what the revelation of Jesus Christ was about? I think this is a big problem. I think it's a huge problem. And here's why. I, the truth be told, I think this is a huge problem because this revelation of Christ, which is so off the grid and out of the theology books and not declared from pulpits. This revelation of Christ in my heart is the very power and life and center of all that Christianity is. It's that big of a deal. Again, think whatever you want to think about end times events or whether the Lord's going to blow up the planet or do this or that with meteors or, you know, whatever you want. I'm not trying to hit the hit on that right now. My point is to talk about the great and continual and incredible daily expectation of the Christian soul. And I, I feel pressed to declare that that Christ is given to the soul to be revealed in the soul. He's not given there to be tucked away in a napkin. He's not given there to be buried in, in, in the ground and, and so that you can show the master that you held on to the, to the thing that he gave you when you were born again. No, he's given to the soul to be uncovered there, to be seen, to be known, to be searched after, to be found like a lost coin in your own house, to be searched for like hidden treasure and, and, and a pearl in a field or a treasure in a field. He, he's, he's given to the soul to be known. 
This is eternal life, Jesus says, to know the Christ who's come, the one who's been given, to, to have him inwardly known and seen and revealed. Friends, that's the whole, in my opinion, that's the whole growth. That, that's the way growth happens. That is the transformation by the renewing of the mind. That is the opening of the eyes of the heart. That is the shining of light out of darkness. For God who shined light out of darkness in the beginning is now shining light in the darkness of your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That This is what everything is talking about. Peter Flesh and blood. You have not, flesh and blood have not shown this to you. Not even my flesh and blood, Peter, have shown this to you. But my Father has revealed it to you. This whole, everything, the whole, the Christ, the life of Christ, the church, it's all hidden. It's hidden from the natural mind. It's hidden from the wise and the learned. And it's it's revealed to babes. In fact, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father and the one to whom He is revealed. And the Spirit is coming, and He has a very specific role. Paul says the Spirit was given, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who was from God to, to, to make known to you, to reveal to you the things that have been given to you, the, the pearl that you have received, the, the Christ that you have you you have received, but the Spirit makes him known. He will take of mine, and he will make it known unto you. He will guide you into all truth. The, the, the Spirit has has been given. What does he do? He opens the eyes of your heart. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's the, the day star rising within you. He's the light shining out of darkness. He's the truth working in the inner man. He... Paul says we walk looking at things that aren't even seen. How do you see those things that are not seen? Do you just believe in them because you read them in a book? Or do you see? That's what he says. He says you see the things which are eternal that are not seen. And you don't see the things. You don't look upon the things that are seen. You walk in the light as he is in the light. Where do you get this light? You get it from the Father unveiling His Son. You get it in the day of the Lord. You you see it. You walk in it in the day of His appearing. You, the day. Where does the day dawn? Well, there's a there's a handful of scriptures that'll tell you where that day dawns. You fix your heart upon Him until the day dawns and the morning star rises in the heart. That is the, the inward seeing of the Lord, the the knowing of Christ, the revealing of Christ working in the soul. I I don't know that anyone can argue this. Anyone that has a Bible on their shelf could pull out a Bible and argue from any scripture anywhere that the the apostles and and the churches of the first century were experiencing the inward beholding, revealing seeing of Christ. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, girding up the loins of your mind, fixing your expectation fully on the grace that is being brought to you at the revealing of Jesus Christ. 
there are so many scriptures that talk about that. And that's why the renewing of the, remind, of the mind or the revealing of Christ or the opening of the eyes, it's, it's just everywhere. All of Jesus' miracles of, of healing naturally blind eyes were only pictures of the eyes of the heart that he desired to open. He even makes that plain in John 9 where he uses the opening of the eyes of a man born blind to condemn the Pharisees as being the ones who, though they saw, were truly blind. I have a lot of teachings uh, on the website that you can go to and you can you can listen. I, 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 almost all of them, really, in some way or another, deal with this revealing of Christ. Let me just say some general things about it now in the time we have left. What is the revelation of Christ? It is It is nothing far away and mystical that is for super special Christians. It is for every Christian, and it's simply this. It is the Christ who you have received in your heart, showing himself, revealing himself, unveiling himself there. It is the light of the Spirit's understanding and view. It is the reality of God's truth. It is the day of Christ dawning, dawning in your heart. It is it is the way that God brings the human soul into his view, into his seeing, into the view of his reality so that the soul can live there and walk in the light as he is in the light. And in his light, see light. And, and have fellowship, because the fellowship is in the light when the soul is beholding what God beholds. Th- those are all just ways of trying to describe it. It's, it's just God teaching your soul the life that you've received. Because if he doesn't, you don't know it. It's, it's that simple. Y- you have received something you don't know until the thing that you've received, which is a person, which is a life, which is the resurrected life of the Son of God, until the Spirit of God reveals it. So what is it? It is God's view being written in your heart, being etched in in your heart by His own finger, so that you can live by His law, but so you can live by His law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's not words. It's not words that are spoken to your ear, although all of God's words testify of it. All of his written words testify of it. It's not visions, although all the visions God has ever given throughout biblical times and presently, all visions are are given to bring the heart to it. But visions, see, Visions are, are, are a much lesser thing than the revealing. Visions in, are still natural. In other words, they, they, they're supernatural, but they're still natural. They're, they, they, they speak to your natural mind. They speak to your, you have a vision of a guy from Macedonia telling you to come and preach the gospel in his district. Paul had that in Acts, right? Uh, that was a vision. It was supernatural, and yet it didn't teach Christ to Paul's soul, it just told Paul to go to Macedonia. Do you see what I'm saying? You can have visions of Christ, or Paul or Peter had a vision um, of a sheet coming down with animals on it, so that you know, so that he would not, so that he would go to the Gentiles, and and 
and, and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It was instructive. It was helpful. And yet the Christ who makes all things clean needed to be revealed in Paul's or in Peter's soul. Or a few years later, he was still going to separate himself from the, from the Gentiles with Paul. You see? He needed to see it inwardly, not just have a vision about it. Visions are great if you have visions, you know, if, if they're real. And, and yet they are to bring the heart to the seeing of Christ. It, it's, not, it's, it's not for special Christians. It's for all Christians. It's the way that... How, do, how does every plant grow? Every plant. And, 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 and maybe, again, I always feel like... I always feel like there's someone's gonna like email me like about some like spongy bacteria at the bottom of the ocean that grows without light or something like that on the you know on like a fish's tooth or something but but pretty much in general all plants grow by light it's for every plant it's that's the way you grow it's not and it's not instructions for living it's not do this and don't do that it's it's a light that works in you and actually it actually doesn't let you live. That's what the light does. It doesn't tell you how to live. It, it, it lets Christ live in your place. It actually, the, the more you see the light, the more you see the cross. And the cross says to you, not I, but Christ. It says you stop living. You see, it's, it's so much bigger than, than God's instruction manual. It's God's Son revealed in the soul to the putting away of your flesh. That, so that's the what. what. What is the revelation of Christ? Where is the revelation of Christ? It's in the soul. It's in the heart. It's not in the brain. The brain can can sometimes catch up afterwards and, and, and use faculties, natural faculties like the mouth or the pen to describe what the heart has seen. Often the brain is totally unable to put into words or even into concepts the things that the Spirit of God reveals in the heart. It, it just The brain is not the faculty into which God shines light. He shines light into the soul. And then the brain says, how in the world am I going to describe that to my friend or to my wife? Or, you know, that the brain is a much lesser faculty. It has its purpose. It's really good for natural things. It's helpful for math. And, and things like that, but it's it is not that's not the where of the revelation of Christ. It is within, and not within the brain, within the heart. It is within the soul. Okay, why? Why is the revelation of Christ? Why is it important, friends? It is important because nothing of the Lord's will happens in the Lord's body without the Lord's mind. That's why it's important. It's important because absolutely nothing of the Lord's will can happen in the Lord's body without the light of the Lord's mind shining. Some of you heard my heard me say that before, but consider it. Think about it. is anything of your will happening in your body apart from your mind? Has, does that even make sense? Does, does not your body need your mind, the light of your eyes, the, the purpose of your heart? Does not your body need that in order to do anything that you would consider good? I, I know that you know someone could grab your body and make it do certain things, but would any of that be considered useful or good if it wasn't coming from your own 
heart, your own mind, your own purpose? Could your body find its find your will in a book? Does that even make sense? Does it not need to experience the will inwardly flowing from the head? Consider these things, friends, because whatever is known and done in God's body, in the Lord's body, without the Lord's light, is done in man's darkness and in man's blindness. And if the light... I have it on good authority that if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? How great is the darkness? Man has no idea what he has been given. We're so in need of Christ that God gives us a perfect seed. A perfect work that can spread and fill up the entire land with a perfect sun. But we have no idea what we've received. We are more ignorant. We are, we are in our natural condition, more ignorant of the life of Christ, even after new birth, than a newborn baby is ignorant of chess or physics or brain surgery, you know? You don't just guess. You don't just give it your best shot. You don't just hand a, a you know, a baby, a, a, you know, a three-day-old baby a scalpel and, and just say, you know, have at it. Good luck. Do your best. And, and there's more at stake. There's more at stake when it comes to spiritual life. So much more. You don't know what you have until the one who gave it shows you. You don't know the life you've received unless the one whose life it is, unveils him. I think, and, and I know I'm out of time here, but I think you can sum up Christianity kind of like this. I mean, this is probably a very peewee, small way to sum it up, but it, just to make it real simple. Christianity is Christ's life given, revealed, formed in the soul of man. It is the life of Jesus Christ offered to man, but offered in order to be given, to be received, to be known, to be, to be seen, to appear, to be formed, and thereby glorified in the soul. If it's given and not revealed, then it's not known. You see? And then you just run around and you do whatever some Christian leader tells you to do and you, you feel good about yourself until the Lord appears. You see, it's, it's given to be revealed or it is not known. It's not experienced. It's not formed within. And therefore, the life that you live in the flesh, in the vessel, becomes a long-lasting contradiction to the life that you've received. And that's a very serious thing. If the vessel receives the gift and then buries it and hides it in a napkin and hides it in the earth, keeping it from its own increase and victory and reign, that's a that's a very serious thing. I, and I know Christians that say, "Why do I? Why do I? Why do I need this? Why do you keep talking about it? Why is it so important?" I think I understand. I think I understand a lot about Christ. I've been a Christian for thirty years or whatever. But see, guys, your understanding 
is part of of the problem. It's it's part. It, I can prove that to you in so many scriptures. Your own thoughts and 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 your own wisdom and imagination is the thing that Christ revealed will remove. It's the thing that the that the sword cuts away. Your wisdom is from below. It's it's James says it's natural, sensual, and demonic. <clears throat> Someone says I've read the Bible twelve times through. You know. Yeah, okay, but God's words without God's light are very dangerous. Christ must be revealed in you. Christ must be revealed in you. And if you're new to hearing this and don't know what that means really or haven't seen with that light, then ask the Lord for it. That's all you need to do. Seek the revealed Christ. Seek the the knowing of Christ. Ask the Spirit of Truth to open the eyes of your heart. Shine His light within. Give you the spiritual wisdom from on high. Ask, seek for that more than anything else. Like, so, like Proverbs two, like buried treasure, like hidden silver. The Lord desires to reveal His Son in you. No. Okay, I went a little long there because um, I started real late. So.